Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meaning of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I'm Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. And joining me is Professor Francesca Murphy. Very pleased to be here. And our special guest today, Father Olivier Thomas Venard. Father Venard is a Dominican priest, ordained in the year 2000 in Toulouse in France, and Professor of New Testament at the École Biblique in Jerusalem. He is the author of numerous works, but I'll mention here especially A Poetic Christ, which is an anthology of translated contributions of an original three-part French trilogy, which we will have occasion to refer to during our conversation. He's also the author of Terre de Dieu et des Hommes, which is a French work on the Holy Land, and I think with theological and sociological reflections, and is um, involved in numerous um, important current projects, including a collaborative work on the Passion of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, and a major work, Dictionnaire Jésus, um, with his colleague and confrere Renaud Sigui, also a Dominican. Um, he's the director also of the research program, which we'll have a chance to speak about at some length, the Bible in its traditions, and um, I understand that that is as expansive as it is important in its reflections on scholarship and theology and the Bible. Today we'll be discussing a number of things with Professor Venard um, regarding uh, his theological vocation and his research on the New Testament. So I think Francesca is going to start us off. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? You are a Dominican priest, for example. How did that come about? Uh, hello, everybody. I'm very pleased to be to be with you. I became a Dominican by the end of my uh, secular studies. I had uh, entered the Ecole Normale Supérieure in, in Paris, and I had just got the aggregation in uh, modern literature. And you know, I was already uh, well on my way for an academic uh, career. And then uh, I, at long last, I took some time to reflect on my life, what I would do about it, uh, besides uh, studying uh, literature. And little by little, uh, helped by uh, my spiritual father, I uh, discerned that one of the best places for me, uh, if uh, they uh, agreed to welcome me, would be with the, the Dominicans. And basically what attracted me there was the ideal of study, because I, I, I've always been a very intellectual kind of person, over-intellectual, many of my friends would say. And the, the ideal of Ali is contemplata. Yes, sorry to interrupt, but there's no such thing as over-intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you think that understanding something, is, uh, a problem, is solving it. But uh, thanks be to God, reality uh, comes back in your face. And, uh, and uh, not only reason or... Uh, you know, lo logical uh, reflection uh, can overcome uh, anything in, in life. But anyway, I love study and, uh, and, and the way faith was transmitted to me uh, by my uh, family included critical reason. And I'm forever grateful to my dad for that because he insisted we would be uh, well trained in the reasons why we would be Catholic. Uh, and I remember he was a general um, by the end of his career in the French army, so not your typical intellectual. But I remember when I, I was a teenager, he insisted to teach my elder brother and, my, and me uh, to teach us some lessons in metaphysics. I mean, in very traditional uh, uh, kind of Thomistic metaphysics. And, and it was very daring of him, you know, uh, but he got it that we would have questions and that he should be a witness to the uh, intelligibility of faith. Uh, so 
I was sort uh, sort of uh, programmed to become a Dominican, but I'm glad to say that I'm the first Dominican brother ever uh, in my family, even though we have had priests and army officers each generation, uh, at least since the French Revolution. <laughs> so, um, yes, Alice Contemplata Trader is the idea of transmitting to others things that you have uh, understood, that you have uh, meditated upon in tranquility and taking all the time and all the pain it needs. Uh, I, fi I find that uh, very attractive. I'm also fond of rhetorics, I must say. And when I was a child, I was boiling on my chair, listening to so many uh, uninteresting preachings at Mass, for example. So I promised myself to try and do better someday. Uninteresting preaching at, in, a, in a certain place? I mean, at church. Uh, oh, at mass, yes. This. Yeah, yeah, with some things, yeah. I've heard a few of those. Yes. Huh? <laughs> How striking, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yes, you know, uh, but, but I, I'm not blaming anybody, but precisely the Dominican order, the order of preachers, like St. Dominic wanted us to be, to be called, we try and, and, and put uh, a strong stress in actually preaching on scriptures in a useful and illuminating way for the people rather than nice moral uh, exhortations or even worse political uh, <laughs> statements. Anyway, so that's part of my, uh, my uh, attraction to the Dominican order and also the ideal of Poverty, but I mean, a nice poverty, not making of it an end in itself, but a means to an end, which means we are quite flexible on the use of material things, provided they are intended to, to help us be better preachers, precisely. And, and we may use many things without owning them. I mean, we own them together somehow. So that's also, I think, something very uh, uh, luring for uh, young people in the consumerist age. You know, the idea of you, you, you will use everything, but you don't need uh, absolutely to own them, to, to make them the, your private property. So I loved uh, that, that idea. And then when, at long last, the bishop, sent me the documentation of the Dominicans and I, I, I went there. I appreciated very much the atmosphere of uh, friendship and I must say uh, actual uh, respect for one another that uh, exists in the order. I mean, we have many, uh, uh, many uh, shortcomings uh, like uh, any other institution, but I've always been struck by the respect for the other brothers, even when we disagree uh, completely on many uh, things, we, uh, I think, we appreciate uh, at least the hard work of uh, the other brothers. So, yes, basically, uh, I must say uh, very humbly and with much gratefulness to my order that in dulce dine amicitie querere veritatem, it's another motto of, of our order. So, looking for uh, truth in the sweetness of friendship. That is something, all in all, that I've been experimenting in, uh, in our order. Your first project is a trilogy of books in French, uh, the first one on Thomas Aquinas, the second on language, the third one on sacred book, uh, Sacropagina. Can you tell us a bit about how it came about, how it originated, and what is this trilogy about? Yeah, I, actually, it's my, my, I would say it's my only book because I, I feel as if I have been repeating myself. Uh, but it, it's quite a, a, a large book. It, it was first my dissertation to, to become a doctor in La Sorbonne. And I was very blessed to meet Alain Michel, late Alain Michel, who was an academician uh, des inscriptions et belles lettres, one of the very, very uh, 
prominent classicists in, in France basically knew everything and anything about Latin or Greek ancient literature. But he was also a very devout and humanist Catholic person. And he had been teaching Latin uh, medieval uh, literature, especially liturgical hymns, for decades in La Sorbonne, in the very uh, secular Sorbonne. He had been teaching basically Latin Christian literature. And at the time I approached him, I knew I would enter the Dominican order, but there was something I did not like about the Dominicans at the time. It was Thomism. I mean, Aquinas was a, a prominent figure for me, but I found the way Thomists would talk to one another in a kind of jargonic way and uh, moreover dub themselves the true realists, I mean, the ones who would know the truth as compared to every, anybody else who did not, I found that very frustrating. So I must say, my approach was, how will I bridge the gap between my secular literary culture, the, ones, the one I, I came from, and, and the new culture I had to, uh, to adopt? I was about to enter the Toulouse province, which is really a, a guardian of the Dominican traditions, and especially Thomism. So I wanted to appreciate uh, the connection, the possible connection or contradictions between modern and contemporary literary theory and studies and medieval Gothic theology. So I asked Alain Michel, would it be possible to study Aquinas as a literary author? Not only as a theoretician, because usually he is considered as a, a monument of ideas, but also as somebody who actually used words. And uh, Alain Michel was very welcoming to my, uh, my suggestion, and he introduced me to the uh, Officium de Corpore Christi, uh, uh, so the, the office of the body and, and, and blood of Christ, you know, the liturgical pieces that were ordered by the Pope uh, of the time from Aquinas. And these uh, splendid pieces of uh, Latin Gothic poetry are considered as the masterpieces in, in Latin poetry of their times. And so uh, Alain Michel told me, of course, Aquinas did not forget. He was also a poet when he composed his theology. So yes, why not? You should study, study Aquinas uh, uh, as, a, as a poet himself, even in his theological works. And so that's how it started. The idea was to try and see what sides of Aquinas' work, especially in the Summa Theologiae, could be dubbed literary? How would such a masterpiece of human words, how would that be integrated into literature as such? And on the other hand, maybe to try and see what side of modern and contemporary literature could be dubbed theological. Because I was mostly interested in French contemporary poets, and these poets, people like Yves Bonnefoy or uh, Philippe Jacotet, and some uh, younger ones, are very, very interested by the question of being, the question of what reality actually is, and beyond that, by the question of God. But their point is, and their main question is the word God is so worn out in the Western world. Could I use the word God? So on the one hand, in our times, you have these poets who are the true guardians of the meaning of words, who are wondering about the possibility to use the word God to refer to the reality of God. And on the other hand, not so far away in time. I mean, only uh, seven or eight centuries ago, uh, you have these Aquinas who uses God, Deus, as the uh, subject of thousands of verbs at the uh, active indicative present time. So as if Aquinas knew 
God, and we had forgotten something about it. Mm. So my, my question was, what happened in our Western culture for such a, a gap to exist? And that's how I unfolded the, the reflection in three parts. First of all, I must say, Alain Michel told me, well, if you go to the end of your project, you should yourself write uh, literary summa theology, and it will be several thousand pages. So it was not very reassuring at, at the beginning, but he was encouraging by using this very nice comparison. He told me, yes, Aquinas is beautiful. I mean, Aquinas scholasticism is beautiful. It's, it's like Jean-Sébastien Bach in uh, literature. It's both utterly uh, intelligible, utterly clever, and utterly pathetic, I mean, full of a heartfelt passion for God, for mankind, for... Not, not the or, English sense of, of pathetic, maybe, but... No, feeling, pathos, pathos, feeling. Pathos, yes. Pathos, feeling. Yes. yes, in the, uh, the etymological sense. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, full of, of, of feeling. And that's really what you feel when you read, you actually read Aquinas in Latin, not in, uh, in the translations, because most of the translations try to retain only the ideas, whereas even in the Summa Theology, the words matter, and also the echoes to the Bible uh, matter very much to understanding Aquinas' point. He is not only a very clear thinker, but he is also using uh, connotations, using even the, the very structure of his, of his question, even sometimes numerological symbolism to say something, to, to make a point. So that's what I did in that very large, uh, it was like a, a very big uh, investigation. First, in the, the first volume, Literature and Theology, tried to show in contemporary literature, how very much theological, in fact, contemporary literature is. So it was kind of fun to use deconstruction to deconstruct this deconstructionist and show that part of their most interesting texts rely actually upon sacred texts that they maybe they subvert them, maybe, but they are still uh, somehow in. Um, uh, uh, dialoguing with the, with the Bible and, and through this dialogue elaborating something like a theology, even though it's mostly an a-theology, a-theology, still, uh, uh, I mean, God and the, the, oh, the main questions of theology, of doctrina sacra, to speak like Aquinas, uh, are uh, of some importance for many of our uh, important poets today. And on the other hand, I try to re-describe the Summa Theologiae as a literary uh, piece of work. And I was greatly helped by uh, Alain Michel, who is uh, a specialist in, uh, in uh, Gothic poetry, but also by um, uh, short books like the Erwin Panofsky on you know, Gothic architecture and uh, scholastic thinking. Uh, they were very good. I, basically, what I did is I applied their most uh, uh, profound intuitions to uh, describing the poetics at work within the Summa Theology. And by the end of this inquiry, I could appreciate what Aquinas had or, or pretended to have and what we seem to have lost. And basically, the two main points were Aquinas pretended to know the language to actually describe being, uh, to actually describe reality as it is. And that's what we have been uh, calling metaphysics. And then Aquinas not only pretended that, but he had access to the very word of God. And his connection with the Bible, his use in the Bible, in his own elaboration, uh, take very seriously, of course, uh, the Bible's inspiration. And all that while being, at the same time, one of the most critical thinkers of his times. Even the text, the very text of scripture or church fathers, he was always looking for the best possible edition, for new sources, for corrections, you know, emendations 
in the in, in the Bible to get the actual sources. So this coincidence of both piety and uh, critical thinking, I found that fascinating. And so I tried to re-appropriate uh, for our times some at least of the, the secrets or the, the, the beliefs or the confidence he could have uh, in uh, human words to tell the truth and to, to describe uh, reality uh, as it is. And so these are the last two uh, books of that trilogy, Metaphysics, the second uh, uh, volume, translation in English could be telling the ineffable. In French, is la langue de l'ineffable. And it's a bit subversive from a Thomistic point of view, because what I pretend in that, uh, in, in, in that book is that for metaphysics actually to work, you need a theological foundation of language as such, because metaphysics requires words and I don't think that metaphysics by itself can answer the uh, deconstructionist arguments against uh, trusting language. Uh, whereas, and that's the third volume of, of the book, the Bible, but not only the Bible, I mean not only the text, the, I would say the praxis of divine scripture in both uh, Judaism and uh, Christianity, uh, the practice of scripture, meaning scripture and the rites connected uh, scripture, which actually enact scripture, make it real. Scripture is not first, firstly a book. I would say it's like a, it's both a book and a recipe. You have to do something about scripture while celebrating sacraments, celebrating liturgy, uh, praying the psalms something happens even to your, uh, your personal human and secular uh, language. And somehow the capacity of our language to tell the truth is being refounded. And that's, that's really what amazed me was to uh, uncover step-by-step uh, step the reasons that Aquinas could have to, to trust a language even though he himself was considered one of the best archons, meaning a grammatical scholar of his times. So could I sum up what you're saying? I think that what you're saying, I'm summing it up and you can tell me if I'm wrong. You're saying that scripture, especially scripture as used in the liturgy, as sung and spoken in the liturgy, is the foundation of ordinary language and metaphysics and ethics. Is that right? Uh, what I mean, of course, it's, it's not the foundation in a, in a very banal sense, because everybody, even those, those who do not know scripture, who do not care about scripture, can use human language. But I, I think that if you question the possibility for language to tell the truth, and if you, if you want to find a sort of absolute uh, fundament for that, uh, the best one you will find is the, the one you, you find in scripture. And basically, what do you find in scripture? It's the incarnation of the world, precisely. What scripture tells you is that God himself, the ineffable God, deigned to speak our words and even to, to become one of us and to have all the organs of phonation that would uh, allow him to speak our words. So if you believe that and if you practice that, if you exercise yourself in that while celebrating sacraments, then of course you may trust language much more than uh, if you have only uh, secular thinking about language, plus uh, all the good reasons we have uh, to be um, defiant towards uh, human sentences. And so what did you think about our translation of your book, In a Poetic Christ? Does the English translation do justice to the original trilogy? Was it strange to your work in English? Was that strange to hear it in English? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I was amazed by the work you did because I was taught that uh, you, uh, English language loved brevity. <laughs> <laughs> and my French is, especially at this time, thanks be to God, I hope I am now, I've corrected myself a little bit, but at, at the time I wrote the trilogy, uh, I, I, I 
put together very long sentences, very, very long sentences. And I was amazed by the fact that you decided you would try to adapt that rhythm in English. And sometimes I've heard, even during the little symposium that you uh, so uh, marvelously uh, <laughs> organized when we launched the, the, the book, uh, some of the speakers read parts of your translation and I could not believe my ears. It was so beautiful, much more beautiful than the French, <laughs> the French <laughs> original. And, and you know, I, I remember several years ago, many years ago, I, I redid the translation of uh, Milbank's Suspended Middle, you know, his book about uh, Henri de Lubac, yes. uh, because I, I had been commissioned a preface for the French version, but the French version was uh, terrible. So I, I proposed to redo the translation, and, 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 and while redoing the translation, of course, I reorganized completely one of the chapters. But by the end, Milbank was kind enough as to tell publicly that for him, the French version of the book was the reference version, <laughs> much more than the English one. And I, I, uh, I must say, I think the same about the, the, the English version of the trilogy. And I want to say everybody, you know, the, the, the version put together by Francesca Murphy and uh, Ken Oakes is much nicer first because the language is more even more beautiful. Uh, the book is much shorter and they retain the, the most in interesting part. <laughs> well, I, I did have a, a question I was about to ask about the crucifixion, but I think maybe now is a good time to break. break yeah, break. we'll have a brief break. And while you're listening to the, the groovy music, that um, we'll put up there. Um, this is a good time, friends, to review and rate uh, my new scripture, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Mining Scripture. Brother Olivier, I, I wanted to ask about some of your current projects, and I know you're working on the crucifixion, um, and of course, you've also discussed this topic at length in the trilogy, so you can reflect on your articulation of your ideas there, or on your current project, which I'm just reading on um, uh, more about what you're working on, has the title The Horror and the Splendor. I don't know if that's a good way of starting your reflection, but I'm intrigued by that title. What, what does that mean, the horror and the splendor in regard to the crucifixion? Well, it, it's a way to encapsulate the way uh, crucifixion is being narrated in the, in, in the Gospels. I mean, the splendor is uh, alluded to when Jesus himself speaks of his crucifixion as an elevation, a glorification in John. Yes as a triumph somehow. And, and the horror, of course, is the actual uh, way Jesus was put to death. Yes. And I, of course, as somebody who wants to, to reflect about language, I am very uh, impressed by this coincidence of history and meaning of a terrible signifier, the most atrocious way of executing somebody in ancient times, with this sublime signified, which is nothing less than God with us, Immanuel. I mean, the, the way Jesus uh, and the Trinity, the way Trinity chooses to reveal, to unveil themselves utterly is just unbelievable. And so I was already uh, struck by this coincidence. But then when I started to actually uh, study uh, with uh, exegetes of our times, uh, crucifixion, I realized that it was not an interpretive movement. It, it did not take decades of Christian theological reflection to turn what could have been just one more horrible disaster into the splendor of divine revelation itself. I was completely um, struck and inspired by a beautiful, beautiful piece by Yoel Marcus that was called, I, I can't remember the exact title, but something like Crucifixion as Parodic Enthronement in the Roman Empire. 
and in very precise ways, uh, citing so lots. Just to of, make sure I get that right. It, it, enthronement was. Yes. Yeah, being, being made a king or something like that. Yeah, crucifixion yeah. as parodic exaltation. Okay. Uh, yes, that was the title. Crucifixion as parodic exaltation. Exaltation, yes. Yeah, and his point, I think he really demonstrated it using all sorts of ancient sources. When Roman legionaries would uh, uh, crucify, uh, especially uh, some guy uh, for political reasons, they would turn the crucifixion into an enthronement, into a coronation. And even, even better, if, if, if I may say, in Latin, in Imperial Latin, uh, to say that somebody has been uh, crucified, they would say, levatus est in cruce, meaning he has been elevated on the cross. And so all of a sudden I realized that this coincidence of horror and splendor was not only an interpretive movement, but even witnesses to the crucifixion could have started that coincidence. And while the Roman soldiers were making fun of Jesus, you know, crowning him with the thorns and then saluting him as a king and putting on the cross this little uh, libellus uh, written, Jesus Nazareth, uh, Jesus of Nazarene, the king of the Jews. So while making fun of him, maybe, who knows, the holy women who, who were there and who became witnesses to the last hours of, uh, of Jesus, they could uh, somehow uh, subvert all these uh, mockeries and all these torments inflicted on Jesus into actual truth. Recognizing yes. his kingship through through the mockery. You see? And so I, I, I am always uh, struck by this coincidence of horror and splendor. And in as much as there is an, analog an analogy, Aquinas himself uh, speaks about uh, this analogy between the body of Christ and the divinity of Christ. I mean, when I say the body, it's his entire humanity, of course. The body is, 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 is spirit as well, is soul, and, and on, the, on the one hand, and his divinity and the structure of the sign in human language with the signifier and the signified. I really think that what is uh, uh, performed and enacted on the cross, and of course, when, when we speak about the cross, we speak also of the mystery of the resurrection. I would not be speaking with you about Jesus' crucifixion if uh, at least some witnesses had not been believed when they said that they met with him risen from the dead. I mean, it would be just one more crucifixion among so many others forgotten in history. So uh, I think that this Paschal mystery performed on what we now call the glorious cross precisely because it's like the, the gateway to the to to, to the glory uh, it's um, it's something uh, i mean uh, yes extremely moving extremely beautiful and uh, it, it's it, it comes to no surprise that so many uh, artists created masterpieces on the last words of jesus on painting or sculpting uh, creating uh, all sorts of crosses and so on. Do you think we've lost the sense that Jesus really is glorified on the cross? Do you think that we very much, in our Catholic culture today, we emphasize the misery of the cross and that he really died, and we don't say that this misery is also glory? Well, I think after the liturgical reform, it was kind of trendy to say where well, he is no longer in, on the cross. So let's uh, sometimes even destroy our crucifix, you remember? Yes. Uh, I, I remember when I was a child, uh, it was kind of trendy to uncross the, the body of Jesus on the crucifixes and to have an empty cross. Why? Because he's no longer on the cross, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I understand the good intentions behind that. It was just to, to make a statement. We do believe he is risen from the dead. And, and uh, yes, 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 yes. And, and the resurrection cannot be uh, described. Uh, what's, the only thing we have about the resurrection is witnesses of people 
who met with the reason one and who were chosen by him, uh, I mean, chosen witnesses to encounters with him. And, and our faith is based on this, this testimony. But I think what we have lost is this precisely the sense that we have in the Gospels. The evangelists do not so much insist on the horror, especially because at their time, the the crucifixion was still practiced by the Roman Empire. So you just had to, to use one word and everybody could figure out the utter uh, horror of that death. But they, they find a way to tell what happened, already uh, turning it into something like a triumph. Yes. In that book, The L'Horreur et la Splendeur, about the crucifixion, the crucifixion. That's exactly what I'm trying to, to detect, is the strategy used by every single evangelist to uh, show splendor already shining through the horror. Yes. And we have kind of lost that. I mean, ancient art, uh, before uh, late Gothic times, artists still knew how to, to, to figure both the suffering and the majesty of Christ. Then, but it's something very well known by, in art history, but then with the black plagues and all the catastrophes that happened in, in the Western world, people insisted on the suffering and with the Devotio Moderna. And ever since, uh, the cross of Jesus has been associated with uh, suffering, and certainly it is associated with suffering. But for the ancient thinkers, and I think we should retrieve that, it's not only an instrument of torture, it's also the key to understanding anything in human existence, and even in the cosmos, the cross has a cosmic side. So the cross as a tool of enlightenment, somehow, as a source of light and of life, is something we have to, to recover. I remember in Jerusalem once, I was telling about that topic at the Shalom Hartman Institute, with Jewish and Muslim friends at the, the time of the blessed memory of uh, David Hartmann when he organized these very, very nice uh, interfaith uh, study meetings. And uh, uh, one of us, a Muslim um, thinker, Husnir uh, Mahmoudjevic, uh, who was the vice president of uh, Bosnia, told me it's the first time I've ever heard about the cross of Christ as a source of light, of reason, of enlightenment. And somehow he, Mahmoud, dear Mahmoud, is the one who uh, commissioned that book from me. Yeah. Now, in the East, of course, there's, I mean, maybe it's in the West as well, but it's definitely in the East, there's the feast, I think, in September of, yes. of the cross. And yeah, we do have the, the, we, we, we do have the celebration of the glorious cross. Yes, I'm not sure we we really uh, understand how the cross itself, not only interpretation of the cross, the cross itself is um, luminous. Yeah. Yes. Mm, beautiful. So after you completed your French trilogy, you went to the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem. For our listeners, can you tell us what is the Ecole Biblique and why did you go there? The Ecole Biblique is the oldest academic institution in the Holy Land uh, that studies the Bible scientifically. I, I would say it's the uh, hypertrophia of the studium of the Dominican Priory there. In the late 1880s, French Dominicans refounded a priory of the Dominican order in the Holy Land. It was still the Ottoman Empire at the time, and we could buy a piece of land from the, from the Greeks through many intermediaries. It's a, it's a very fun story. And we established a new priory. And then in 1890, the master of the order sent their father Lagrange Venerable Father Lagrange, a French Dominican of the Toulouse province, and his mission was you must study the Bible scientifically in the land of the Bible. 
because at the time, as uh, you, you know, uh, uh, in the Western culture, the traditional synthesis about uh, not only the Catholic, but also the Jewish uh, and Protestant faith tend to be deconstructed based upon true or pretended new discoveries, either archaeological or in the papyri or in history. So the idea was, it was a very nice idea at the time, we can't answer rational and critical reasons only by reasserting authoritatively things. If there are intellectual and critical questions, we must address them at their level. And that's the original, that's the origin of the, the Ecole Biblique. It was not easy at all. I mean, we were approved and even encouraged by Pope Leo XIII, but then his successors were not as keen as he was, and you know, the modernist crisis and so on. Uh, Father Lagrange went through many trials, but thanks to his uh, Thomist uh, training, he knew how to distinguish to better unite. And if you have historical questions, uh, it's good to study and to try to solve these questions historically and not immediately come with theological authority on a question that is not firstly theological. So all these kind of uh, discernments had to, to be done, and it marked forever the, the Ecole Biblique for the best, which is using as many auxiliary orientalist sciences as possible to better understand the biblical text, and, and sometimes uh, with uh, some excesses, as we, as we well know, the historical critical method is very important, is necessary, but is not all of biblical exegesis. So the Ecole Biblique is run by the Dominicans. When I was ordained a priest, they were in need of fresh blood, and we still are, by the way, in need <laughs> of fresh blood. And, and I was proposed to, to, to go there. And the other thing I could have done is to stay in Toulouse and become uh, uh, probably uh, uh, a member of the Thomist establishment there, I would say. <laughs> but I found that very attractive. To, and it, it's, it's really where I was with my uh, reflection. Uh, was really uh, reflecting uh, about the Bible itself the efficiency of the Bible and, and how comes we, we have somehow lost some of the audacity of uh, Aquinas in his and of ancient authors in their dealing with the sacred text. Can you talk about your current project at the Ecole Biblique? Can you talk about the Bible and its traditions? Yes. So uh, the Ecole Biblique uh, is famous for the excavations in Qumran. You know, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Our director was in charge of putting together a team to first ex excavate them and then to edit them scientifically. But the Ecole is also famous, at least in the French world, for the, the so-called Jerusalem Bible. In 1943, the Dominicans of the Ecole Biblique started to edit a new Catholic Bible that would make accessible to mass audience, to uh, anybody, the best results of 60 years of historical critical study of the text. So new translations based on Hebrew, Greek, uh, as much as possible, or Aramaic, and notes that would deliver to regular people the, the most solid results of historical research. And that Bible became the best spread Bible, at least in the, in the French world, and it's been translated in, in, uh, in tens of languages. I think I'm the... I may be the only one at Notre Dame who teaches with the New, the new Jerusalem Bible that Henry Wong uh -huh. adapted into English. Exactly. And as you know, dear Father Henry Ransbro has just, uh, or is about to release, a revised New Jerusalem Bible. That. I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've been in touch a little bit. But, but just to get to your, your specific project, the Bible and its traditions. Ex exactly. The Bible and its traditions continues somehow that tradition of delivering the Bible to mass audience. But many uh, new things happened in uh, uh, biblical studies 
since that first project, the, the Jerusalem Bible was a mid-20th century biblical project that addressed questions that had been raised by the end of the 19th century. So all that is quite old. And I must say, uh, most of the Bibles you, you, you find today are cast into the, that standard, which is uh, uh, an overly uh, historical, critical standard. Okay, so finding the most original text and trying to evaluate, to gauge the historicity of, uh, if not the story itself, I mean, the events themselves, at least the narration and, and so on and so forth. But what happened since the mid of the 20th century is first that we do know that the quest for an original text is um, something like, uh, do, do you say a goose chase? No. Um, <laughs> wild goose chase. Wild goose chase. has to be wild. Okay. Uh, because uh, it's very same, hard. You have the same saying in French? Chercher yes. Uh, uh, dans une meule de foin. It would be uh, to, to look for a, a needle in, uh, you know, a big pile of... Uh, of hay. That's of, looking for a needle in a haystack. In a haystack, yes. yes. Exactly. That's yes. Right, okay, that, okay. That. sorry, keep going. Yeah. No, so I'm exaggerating, but... but what we know, especially thanks to the discoveries in Qumran, is that the biblical text has basically always existed in different versions. And that the polyphony, the fact that the word of God is being transmitted, uh, not only in Hebrew, but also in Greek and in Syriac and in Aramaic and in Latin, uh, in ancient times, the fact that uh, there were, even in Hebrew at the time of our Lord, there were several Hebrew versions. One of them was the Proto-Masoretic text, for sure. Uh, and we know that because of the beautiful uh, scroll of Isaiah in, in Qumran, but many of them were different. So basically, we tend today to appreciate the fact that the Word of God is not one single text, but is a polyphony of texts of versions, and that if we want to deliver the word of God to mass audience, we should not suffice ourselves with one single version. We should try and find a way to present at least the most important traditional versions together. Why not try to reconstruct an original text if we think that on this book or that book, the Hebrew or the Greek has more chances to be the, the original, why not try to reconstruct it? But that should pertain to notes because it's hypothetical. Even very good scientific hypothesis, but still hypothetical. What was actually transmitted is what matters. And so we appreciate now the word of God as polyphonic. You know, we found the motto of this new project of ours, in Psalm 62, verse 11, I think it's God spoke once or God said one thing and I got two things. I, under, I understood mm. two things. Mm. And if you go to the psalm, you, you will see that the writer wrote three things. <laughs> There's this beautiful biblical idea that, of course, the word of God does not use human words, cannot be imprisoned in human words. But when the word of God comes to meet human cultures, he will produce a beautiful polyphony. And this uh, polyphony is irreducible and should be celebrated. Hence our project. It sounds like, is it okay just to interject? I mean, it sounds like almost, and this is a caricature, but just to provoke you a bit. I mean, it sounds like there, there's no more Bible, right? There's no, there's no true Bible. And there's just uh, uh, scriptures out there that we can be in conversation with, but has the Bible disappeared? No, 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 no. <laughs> there is a Bible. There is a, there, is, there is a biblical canon. There are biblical canons. There are biblical texts. But what is for sure is that we uh, rediscover what some, I think, American thinkers dub the liquidity of scriptures. The fact that scriptures exist by through and for actual human communities. 
They do not exist as if they were there with nobody for them. We have been somehow misled by the printed press because thanks to the printed press, especially now with all the editing process, you could think that a Bible is an object completely unattached to actual human bodies. But, but it is not true, you know, because the Bible, you, you can buy it and covered with plastic in a, in, a, in a large store and nobody before you opened that book, you know. And I think it's very misleading because why do we have scriptures? Because actual flesh communities of human beings transmitted it. You know, and that's something I love to rediscover uh, uh, thanks to Aquinas. You know, he was not a, firstly a theologian, he was a master in Pagina Sacra. And the only book he had on his desk when he was teaching was a Bible, but not a printed Bible, a manuscript Bible, mm. uh, which means that in order to have that object in front of him and to try and stop and teach from that book, before him, generation after generation, actual human hands and hearts and bodies had transmitted in handwriting the scripture. And I think, so for him, the interconnection between scripture and human liturgical uh, ritual practices, it was obvious. He, he, he did not have to think about it. It, it, it. The object himself would not have existed without this praxis. And I think we have lost that sense. And we feel as if the Bible was a book somewhere out there that we, we should, uh, in a kind of extrinsic effort, appropriate. Yes. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question, okay? okay? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to get my final question in. I do, I think what you say about the liquidity is scripture, it is so beautiful and so important. It's just like we don't have one single reconstructed Jesus of history. Of course. We have four Gospels. And in the same way, uh, we have many texts, many liturgies. And so begin from the fact that there are four Gospels, inextricable four Gospels. Not, yeah. not a synthetic Jesus of history, but four Gospels, yeah. you know, four yeah. witnesses. So yeah. I want to ask you finally a difficult question, which is about your chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Christology, which I translated. And you argue in your chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Christology that the Old Testament objectively prefigures Christ. No, the, just that Christians have a special faith paradigm where they imagine the Old Testament prefigures Christ, and that's okay for them because they're in their nice little paradigm. You say the Old Testament really intentionally, objectively looks forward to the coming of Christ, foreshadows him. Now, tell me, if this is true, is the Old Testament no longer a Jewish text? Um, are Jews who do not see Christ in the Hebrew scriptures, are they misreading it? How do you talk to Jews in Jerusalem about your conception of the Old Testament? Do we have anything to learn from the Jewish reading of scripture? Now, you can answer any of those questions. I'm just kind of curious <laughs> to you know, any of that, take from, from that whatever is most important to you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the entire podcast could have been just, <laughs> about, that's that. Right. Yes. just about, uh, about that. I, I would say, first, firstly, that I am uh, now uh, at, at this stage in my uh, intellectual and spiritual life, I'm convinced that a, a renewal of Catholic theology will be based on two main columns. One is friendship, actual friendship and study together with Jews, because I've learned so much with my Jewish friends uh, at all sorts of levels in Jerusalem. So that, that's for me. So that answers the question about, do we have anything to learn from Jewish uh, reading <laughs> of scripture today? Of course, absolutely. And the second, I would say the second column of a renewal is collaboration with artists. Uh, uh, but that's uh, another subject. To, to, to go back to the, the, the question, speaking formally, the Old Testament is not Jewish. The Old Testament 
Qua Old Testament is of course Christian because the organization of the books of the Old Testament and even the, 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 the word Old Testament is very often considered or felt as a bit derisive by our Jewish friends. And even the word Bible is more a Christian word than a Jewish one. Our Jewish friends read the Tanakh, uh, the Tanakh, and uh, the, so the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. They have a completely different organization. Of, in there, so the, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. For, exactly. For but yeah. what they call the Torah, what they call the prophet, and what they call the writings are not exactly what we call the law, what we call the prophets, and what we call the, the, the wisdom text, for, for example. So I really think we should acknowledge that the books, of course, they have, they have much in common. I mean, the, the, the text. And we acknowledge uh, Hebraica Veritas. We need uh, Jewish scholarship and we need Jewish interpretation of the Tanakh. But of course, the way in the Christian tradition, these uh, texts that pertain to the Tanakh has been transmitted is different and turn them any artist or critic uh, among our, our listeners knows very well that if you have the same elements but organized dispatch in another way it's two different works they look like together okay so i really think we should acknowledge maybe better than we we've done uh, our difference before to, uh, we, we start with saying that uh, we read the Old Testament and the Old Testament is the Bible of the Jews. I think it's very caricatural to put it that, that way. Now, I think that the Christian reading of the Bible is a Jewish reading. And I really think that Christianity is a kind of Judaism. And I don't want to, to be provocative in doing so, but... For me, most of the present-day studies of both early Christianity and formative Judaism show us that rabbinical Judaism, so Judaism as we know it, with all its diversity today, and uh, uh, Orthodox Christianities, Orthodox churches, Catholic church, I mean, apostolic churches, yes. we, both, uh, both these traditions come from the Judaism of the Second Temple period. Yes. And that Judaism wa was uh, both united by the Temple, the, re the, the recognition of the Torah, but also extremely diverse, extremely diverse. And the, basically, the Christian reading continues kind of apocalyptic, eschatological, pharisaic reading of scriptures uh, for which we have many other witnesses. So, yes, the Christian synthesis that is um, uh, especially uh, founded in, in the Pauline corpus, but not exclusively in the Pauline corpus, is that synthesis is at the time, a possible Jewish synthesis. So when historical Judaism, as we know it today, was reorganized after all the, the, the big destructions of the temple, of the, of the people, the failed uh, Messiah, Bar Kokhba, and so on, when they reorganized what we call today Judaism, they proposed, because they had not recognized in uh, Yeshua, uh, of Nazareth, the, the Messiah, they organized it another way. But I really feel if we read uh, New Testament as Jewish Second Temple literature, which it is, and I've been blessed in my life to teach New Testament as Jewish Second Temple literature with Jewish friends at Hebrew U in, uh, in Jerusalem. If you do that, you can just see that it is a Jewish possible reading of the Bible, what provided, of course, you uh, recognize uh, the Messiah in Jesus. So, uh, Brother Olivier, there's so much more to say. Uh, yeah. I, and so I feel embarrassed to bring us to a close. I mean, we could keep going about Thomas, about rhetoric and language and more about your projects, and then especially this question of how to read the, the Old Testament. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being with us.
It was a great, great, great conversation. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed hearing you. But, yeah, I hope it was not too elusive because <laughs> it's so many it, subjects. This, this just inspires us to invite, feel, invite you back. No, I feel really inspired. Really great conversation. <laughs> Thank you. So here's just a final thought. Uh, so thanks to all of our listeners for joining us. Please spread the news about Mining Scripture. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Be sure to be with us also for the next episode of Mining Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet. Thank you. Mm -hmm.